what I want to talk into, I want to pick up from um, some stuff that Vaughan spoke into over the last couple of weeks. And Vaughan just spoke so brilliantly into some key heart and relational issues. Would you like me to smile, Jen? <laughs> I, I don't mind smiling. It's okay. <laughs> um, if anyone else wants to take a photo, you know, feel free. It's okay. I think I fixed my eyebrows. I think they're all right. Um, I don't actually know that that's what she was doing, but it's looked funny to me. Um, I want to um, I want to pick up from some of this heart stuff that Vaughan was talking about over the last couple of weeks. And there are a couple of times where Vaughan made this utterly profound statement. And that's what I want to dig into. And he made this statement, all fruitfulness comes out of covenant. He said it a couple of times over the last couple of weeks. And it just struck me like, oh my goodness, that is utterly profound. And it's one of those issues that until you see it, you don't see it. But once you see it, it's absolutely everywhere in Scripture. And I'm going to pick up a couple of stories in a moment, but let me lay a little bit of a foundation. As we've got on the heart journey, you would have heard us talk um, quite a bit about some different relational states, if you like, for want of a better word. Um, there, there's the orphan heart, which is essentially the, the survival-based approach to life that says, unless I meet my needs, they will not be met. Unless I do it, it won't happen. It's this rugged, independent thing um, that usually comes out of having to deeply self-protect in your growing up years where no one else actually protected you and therefore you had to do it yourself whether that be physically whether that be emotionally and ultimately if you think of someone who's living on the streets you know a kid who's living on the streets as an orphan they have to fight to get their needs met because the normal design of family which is there to nurture and to protect until such time as they can do that for themselves isn't there. So they learn from a very early age, I'm independent, I have to protect myself from the big bad world out there. And that is, that is the birthplace of the orphan heart. And it creeps into us so often in so many areas. And I'm not here to talk about that one um, so much today, but just to recognise, okay, that's one of the states. Now, coming out of orphanhood, we come into this this mother-father-son-daughter relationship. And essentially what that is about is, I'm not just my own supplier of my needs. I build relationships into my life where people hold me accountable to being all that God has created me to be. And that's, and I'm not so much talking from a moral sense, although that kind of helps. Um, you know, when, when someone can look you in the eye and say, hey, dude, what are you hanging around with that stuff for? That's really dumb. What are you doing? But ultimately, I believe biblical New Testament accountability is holding us account to our destiny. It's holding us account to the greatness that is in us, uh, to the image and the character of God that is in us and saying, hey, you are so awesome. What are you doing there? You know, what are you doing to, to steward the awesomeness that's in you? That should make you smile a little. I'm, that, that, that's That's good. Good thing. It's a way more life-giving approach to accountability. I mean, how many of you would love the approach to accountability? The big brother kind of, there's cameras everywhere and every time you slightly slip up, there's someone there going, ha, saw that, saw that. Would that be life-giving? No. As distinct from when you forget who you are and someone comes in and reminds you and says, hey, let me remind you who you really are and starts to speak true worth into you and starts to encourage you. That's the kind of accountability I'm talking about. And ultimately, the good side of that is not only when I give it to another, but when I ask it. I remember um, Mike Ambler, a friend of mine, many of you know, um, I remember I was, I was out um, doing some 
corporate thing somewhere and I met my phone rang and I saw it was Mike so I picked it up and Mike said um, hey can you just remind me why we do what we do again <laughs> I'm like oh you're feeling like that all right let's go and it was just simply hey I need to be reminded who I am because I'm feeling really discouraged and disheartened that's that that's I, I open my heart to allow others to speak into me that that's that mother father son daughter yeah that father son mother daughter mother son father daughter I got that wow Thanks. <laughs> I just had to kind of let go and let it out and hope it worked. It worked. But there's another level of relationship that Scripture presents, and that is called covenant. And the mother, father, son, daughter thing really gets answered by who is speaking into your life. Who, who, are, who are the people that you take counsel from, that you let talk to you, that you let challenge you, that you let confront you in the most constructive possible way. But... Covenant is the highest level of relationship. And I want to unpack that a little bit more. I want to start by saying simply that God is actually a covenantal God. It's a part of his character and his nature. If you look through scripture, all of his dealings, all of his major dealings with people all involve covenants. Now, there are a number of you know, like really big deal covenants in scripture. How many of you can name any of them? Okay, go for one. The covenant with David. You will always have a king on the throne. And despite his sons who went after him, doing everything to trash that, God's covenant with David stood. And ultimately, Jesus was from the line of David. And ultimately, there is a king on David's throne for eternity. What else, Adrian? I know you've got it. The new covenant. Yes, that's the one we love. Absolutely. What else? What other covenants are there in Scripture? Abraham. Abraham? What was the covenant with Abraham? I'll make you a great nation. I will bless you. Your descendants will be more than the stars. Um, the stars on the seashore. I was about to say that's really wrong. <laughs> that's not a lot. <laughs> more than the sand on the seashore and the stars and the, uh, and the yeah. Um, that also involved a land. Some people divide Abraham and the Palestinian covenant separate. Um, but essentially the Abrahamic covenant involved a land as well. Uh, who else did God make a covenant with? David, yeah, we talked about David. Who else? Noah. He made a covenant with Noah. What was that? I won't flood the earth again. The rainbow. The rainbow was God's. Huh? We need to take that sucker back, I tell you. Who else did God make a covenant with? Moses. Yes. Excellent. And that, that was essentially the law. The law of Moses was, was the covenant with Moses. We've covered that. Oh, there's one more. One more major one. And yeah, that was kind of Abraham and, and, and a flow out from that. You could, we could argue a number of them, or David as well. We could argue that, yes. It goes right, right, but yeah, Adam, the Adamic covenant um, or the Edenic covenant. Some people divide that in two. Okay, the point is not all of those. <laughs> the point is not what all of those covenants are about, but simply that God is a covenant-making God. It is in his nature. It's like he can't help himself. It is how he operates. It flows out of his character and his nature. Now, we are made in the image of God. And if we are to fully reflect his image, I want to suggest that he has made us a covenantal people. Well, that went down like a rat sandwich. <laughs> He has made us a covenantal people. He has made us 
such that the highest expression of relationship on the earth is covenant. Now, the most obvious expression of that is marriage. Marriage is a covenant relationship, but it's not the only one. And I want to look at a couple in Scripture. Um, Ruth chapter 1. If you want to go there, feel free. I will stay there for a short amount of time and then we will jump over to 1 Samuel and look at another one. So the most obvious example of covenant is marriage. For those of you who know the Princess Bride. (laughs) We are gathered. Anyway. Um, (laughs) So the story of Naomi and Ruth... um, Cutting a long story short, so Naomi had two sons. Because of a famine, they moved out of Israel um, to the land of Moab and they lived there. Naomi's sons both died and his and their two wives, one of which was Ruth, um, Naomi said to them, look, go back to your land. Naomi, had the, the famine had ended in Israel. She was going back and said to her daughters, go back to your land. Go find yourselves husbands. You've been really kind to me. Go do that. Go look after yourself. Um, and one of the daughters went, but Ruth said no. And verse 16 is what Ruth says to her mother-in-law, Naomi. She says, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. This is verses I often read out at weddings. I love this because there's so, even though this is not in a marriage context, it is so the, the heart of what marriage is about. Um, this is where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. That was a covenant relationship. That is, I am joining my life to yours and we are in this together until death do us part, essentially. That was a covenant relationship. And um, it's, when, when Ruth says, may, may God deal with me ever so severely, one of the th- in terms of covenants, sorry, I'm ending... Once I'm stopping a sentence in the middle and starting the next one before I've ended that one. And then I'm going, I haven't finished that sentence, but I'm coming back. Let me try and slow down a little. When they made covenants in Israel, one of the ways that they would make a covenant is they would get a whole series of animals and they would literally cut them in half, put them kind of like, if you can imagine half the animal over here, half the animal over here, and the blood would be everywhere. And they would literally walk down the middle of all of these slain animals. And essentially they're saying, if I don't fulfill my end of the covenant, may what happens to me be what happened to these animals. That, 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 that was essentially covenants. They were, they were made in blood. So when Jesus said, this is my blood of the new covenant, he was making a kingdom, God, covenant. More on that in a sec. The only way... Actually, more on that right now. (laughs) The only way that a covenant like that was brought to an end was by the death of one of the parties. Now, I do believe that in this day, there are covenant relationships that are seasonal. And I'm actually okay with that. Marriage is not one of those ones that's seasonal. (laughs) Marriage is one of those ones that is literally till death do us part. But I believe there are covenant relationships in the kingdom that God brings together for a season, for a period of time, and then God moves parties on. I'm, I'm okay with that. Um, but 
the majority of covenants were the only way to end the covenant was through the death of one of the parties. So when God made that covenant with Moses, the, what we call the old covenant, the only way for that covenant to end was by the death of either the people that he made the covenant with or the death of God. And such, Jesus died to end that covenant. Does that make sense? So there is covenantal stuff all the way through Scripture. It is absolutely everywhere. And I think one of the errors that we tend to make, particularly in old versus new, is when we, when we try to operate with God and in his kingdom outside the covenantal context of the way he is operating. In other words, when we operate on an old covenant paradigm, we do damage to everybody else around us. I've talked more about that in other times and I won't pick that up now. But when we talk about covenant, operating within the covenant we have with God is really important. But back to, back to the human covenants with each other. There's another one that is particularly powerful. And this is in 1 Samuel chapter 18. If you want to go there, let's have a little bit of a look at it. And this is between David and Jonathan. So 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 1. By the way, in verses 16 and 17 pretty famous story that you may have heard if you grew up in church you would have heard this probably in preschool which is David and Goliath where David slew Goliath is in chapter 16 and 17 and this is straight after that and David has come been brought back to King Saul after killing Goliath and he still has the head in his hand which is to them really normal to us utterly utterly vile Um, my stomach really wouldn't handle that particularly well So at the end of chapter 17, as soon as David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul, who was the king, with David still holding the Philistine's head. (laughs) Whose son are you, young man? Saul asked him. David said, I'm the son of your servant, Jesse of Bethlehem. Now, this is the bit I want to pick up on. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan, now Jonathan was the son of Saul. And it's really important to understand that Jonathan being the son of Saul was the heir to the throne after Saul. This is a really, really critical piece of information that we often miss when we read this. Um, uh, After David finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David and he loved him as himself. Now, depending on which version you have, the version I really love was the Saul of David became knit to the Saul of Jonathan and Jonathan loved David as he loved himself. So this sense of their souls knitted together. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Now that sounds like, okay, that's a really cool kind of ceremony thing. Wow, that's, that's really amazing. But if we don't understand what's going on there, we miss the power of what this covenant thing is and what covenant looks like. So... Key thing to understand, Jonathan was Saul's son and therefore the heir to the throne. Also want to understand that Jonathan was no slouch in battle whatsoever. This guy was not a wuss. If you go back to 1 Samuel chapter 14, a story I absolutely love, I've talked about a number of times where Jonathan is with his armour bearer and sees this whole Philistine army. Jonathan's there with his armour bearer, it's just the two of them, sees this whole Philistine army, looks at his armour bearer, looks at the army and says to his armour bearer, hey, I think we can take them. 
And then he comes out with this ridiculously stupid strategy because they're from one side of the valley to the other. So they go down to the bottom of the valley and Jonathan says, let's see if God's with us. Because like, if he's not, they're so deeply stuffed, right? <laughs> and he says, and so they are at the bottom of the hill. And, and he said, here's the sign. If they say, come up here to meet us, then God's on our side. If they say, we'll come down to you, God's not with us. Now think of this from a military strategy perspective for a moment. There's two of them multiplied hundreds of Philistines. Golden rule of battle is if you, are, if, if you are outnumbered and from an elevated position, the technical term is you're stuffed. <laughs> okay? you, you are Philistine dinner at that point in time. And so Jonathan sets up the most difficult, impossible conditions and says, if those things happen, God's with us. And of course, that's what happened. They crawl up the hill to this army. The army gets thrown into chaos, turns on themselves and Jonathan prevails. That's pretty impressive stuff, right? I mean, we could just kind of close the night right there and go amen and go, oh my gosh, that is so ridiculously confronting. Like that level of boldness. Um, And as a result of that act, if you keep reading through um, 1 Samuel 14 and 15, you see that a whole lot of Israelites who are hiding out in the Philistine camp, who had given up because of the power of the Philistines, all of a sudden were emboldened by Jonathan's act and were drawn out of hiding and into battle. So Jonathan is no slouch. That was my point of that whole story. <laughs> but that was, to me, way more fun than just saying Jonathan was no slouch. You've got you, you to get, get this viscerally, right? Jonathan was no slouch and he was the heir to the throne. And as a result of some of his exploits and his breakthroughs, he calls the whole nation of Israel together. So you could easily say there was momentum on this guy's life to assume the kingship once his father was done. We get that far. Okay, so when Jonathan made a covenant with David, Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing. What do you reckon that robe was? It was actually a royal robe that he was wearing. He takes off his sword, he takes off his belt. Essentially what Jonathan did in that moment is he recognised the anointing of God on the life of David to be the next king of Israel. And in removing his, his robe, his belt, his sword and putting it on David, he is saying in the course of that covenant, I am recognising the anointing of God on your life and I will personally sacrifice. I will give away what is mine because I recognise God on you. And so he takes everything that he is, that he is um, legally um, meant to inherit and he puts it on David. And in doing so, does this prophetic act that you'll be the next king. Now, if you don't believe that, go over a couple of chapters to chapter 23 of 1 Samuel and verse, eight, uh, verse 15 of 1 Samuel 23. So in those few chapters that I've just skipped over there, Saul has got ridiculously jealous of David because all these people are dancing around singing this song that Saul has slain his thousands, David his tens of thousands. Saul is profoundly insecure and has this whole man insecurity competitive thing going on with David because everyone's basically singing a song that says that David's better than Saul. Now the true heart of a father rejoices when their sons exceed them. That's the true heart of a father. A true heart of a father will always rejoice when their sons exceed them. That was not the heart of Saul. Heart of Saul became deeply jealous, deeply insecure, and he starts pursuing David to try and kill him. 
keeping in mind that Saul is Jonathan's father. And we come to chapter 23, verse 15. While David was at Haresh in the desert of Ziph, whatever that is, it's in tongues, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. And Saul's son, Jonathan, went to David at Haresh and helped him find strength in God. Don't be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel and I will be second to you. This is huge. This is really large. And he said, um, my father Saul will not lay, I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. Then Jonathan went home. David remained in Haresh. The essence of covenant relationship is there is this knitting of hearts together. And that this concept of allowing our hearts to be knit to the soul of another will bring up all of our relational brokenness. It will bring up all of our selfishness. It will bring up all of our relational immaturity. Because as it, as it, at its heart, it says, I'm going to let you in. I'm going to let you in to such a deep place in my heart that I will personally sacrifice for your advancement even if it costs me. And obviously for Jonathan, yeah, he, had a, he had a lifetime of royalty ahead of him that wasn't unearned in terms of his character, in terms of his military prowess. But yet, one who is absolutely able to be king saw the anointing of God on another and said, I will serve you. That's powerful. That's huge. And it wasn't just a one-way street either. If you keep reading the way that David, um, until Jonathan's death, actually protected and looked after Jonathan, this was a significant two-way street. But the power of covenant relationship says, I see what's on your life. In other words, you have such a place in my heart that I will sacrifice to see you become everything that God has created you to be. And when both of us do that for each other in covenant relationship, fruitfulness is the most natural outcome in the world. We making sense? Okay. One of the, um, at least that I know, um, in terms of public people that you and all, all know well of an earthly covenant between two people is Bill Johnson and Chris Vallotton. They've been together for close, coming up to 40 years. And if you listen to Chris talk about it, um, I won't do it justice. You know, if, if you ever hear Chris Vallotton talk about his relationship with Bill Johnson, let it hit you hard. Uh, because Chris could easily be you know, an international senior guy leading a movement in his own right. He's of that calibre. But the nature of that covenant relationship is neither of those two people would be the fullness of who they are without each other. There are things that, that Bill and Bethel have accomplished because of Chris. And there are things that Chris has become because of Bill. And the power is in the covenant between them, not just the, the, the two individuals. And I think the fruitfulness in that one speaks to itself, speaks for itself. So let me recap a couple of things that Vaughan said really quickly in terms of fruitfulness and covenant. And this is the bit where until you see it, you don't see it. And then once you see it, you can't 
You can never unsee it and you see it everywhere. Genesis chapter one, the command to Adam and Eve was to be fruitful and multiply. Now, if you don't slow down and think, you've got to understand that Eve was flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone. They were in covenant relationship. And out of that covenant was the command to fill the earth and multiply it. So the, cover, the, the, the context in which be fruitful and multiply came was to a covenant relationship. John chapter 17, which Vaughan unpacked so beautifully last week, where Jesus is praying and he says, Father, may they, speaking of you and me, may they be one as you and I are one. That's a pretty big as. Don't go there. <laughs> that is a very big as. Because there is, there is no... Um, there is, there is no relational block between those two. There is this deep heart connected. That, that's as one as you can get. And Jesus prays that we would have that same level of oneness so that the world may know that the Father sent Jesus. There's the fruitfulness part. And again, it's out of that covenantal relationship that it comes. John's version of the Great Commission um, in John chapter 20, Jesus, John's version of it, Jesus says, as the Father sent me, I send you. In other words, out of that relationship of father and son, he sent me in the context of that covenantal relationship. I send you in the context of that covenantal relationship. And then when you look in the book of Acts, We've talked about this before, and it was a few weeks back when I talked about the Ecclesia Heart Journey and Heaven's Blueprint. The relational language in the early chapters of Acts shows how powerfully they got this. The, the words there were involved intense devotion, having the same fire. That they got this right from the get-go. Like I said, this idea is going to challenge our relational brokenness. It's going to challenge our, our relational immaturity. It's just... it's. It just challenges you to the core. It says, I can't, if, I'm, if we want to be a kingdom people, if we want to see heaven come to earth, that looks like something. And that looks like, one of the things that that looks like is a group of people whose hearts have been knitted to each other by God. That there is such a, a love and a oneness and we see later in the book of Acts and someone here will tell me which city it was, when they looked on and said, my, how those Christians love one another. The, the, the biggest impact, even though there were supernatural signs and wonders flying absolutely everywhere and they were turning the world upside down, they looked on them and said, man, those people really love one another. Huda Wada. Said that, that we talked about that. Um, that was, yes, we talked about that. That's a city just across the border from El Paso where that stuff happened in the last week. Um, so one of the things that Vaughan said so beautifully is that this kingdom life, and, th and this is in the West we fall into this trap, is that our kingdom life involves attending events, attending programs. Yes, Steve, um, Steve Frost talked about this so beautifully when he talked about the words Jesus could have used when describing the church. And one of the words, um, Panagurus, which means essentially a festival, a carnival, an event, big conference, that kind of thing. He could have said that, but he didn't use that language. Um, we're not committing to programs and events. We're committing deeply to each other. 
We're committing not to programs, but to people. Not to events, but to a family. And yeah, in the Western church, we have such high transfer. I'm talking you know, really broadly across the board. You know, we're, we're always, you know, a lot of churches grow simply via transfer. And it simply says we don't know how to build family. We don't know how to build genuine oneness where, where we allow our hearts to be knit to each other. And look, I do believe that there are seasons where God moves people around and God moves people on and he moves people around like chess pieces strategically. I have no problem with that. But I also know, as I've said um, in a series I did a while back on the family of God, that in the Western church, we tend to treat the church like it's a service provider. And I'm not talking like church, I'm just talking a service provider. And when we're not satisfied with the service, we take our business elsewhere. And that is so far removed from the kingdom pattern, which is we build covenantal relationship with each other. And you don't walk away from that stuff, even when it gets tough. And if we do walk away from stuff when it gets tough, we remain really, really immature. Because God puts, some of you are going to look at me now, God puts annoying people in our life to rub off the rough edges. Yeah, thanks, Cam. <laughs> Thought you might be, yeah. <laughs> when I was in Bible college, uh, we used to have a name for it. We called it Sandpaper Ministry. Because <laughs> we, we would rub each other up the wrong way. And I, I mean, I was young when I went to Bible college and I had this naive view. I'm going to be around these all awesome Christians who are all pointing their life at the kingdom. It's going to be so amazing. Far out, it was hard. Living in community with these people day in, day out was really, really hard. It was really challenging. And that's when we called it sandpaper ministry because we're rubbing each other up the wrong way. But that's the iron sharpens iron. Iron can only sharpen iron when it rubs up against and it usually causes some sparks and some friction. But that's the process of maturing. Okay. Let me bring one more covenantal relationship into play just to make sure we get this and then we're going to land this. We often think of the end game of this whole thing when the whole thing gets wrapped up as we're going to heaven. That's a good thing. I'm, I'm for that. I mean, actually, if I wanted to be really technical, the whole direction of Revelation is now the dwelling of God is with man, which means heaven comes here rather than we go there. But that's, an, that's another message. But we think, okay, the, the end game is we all get to be in heaven and we get to worship around the crystal sea and I want to go for a swim in that thing and fair dinkum. That is going to be amazing. But let's remember, what is the end game in Revelation chapter 19? It's not a worship event. It's actually a wedding. Revelation 19, the culmination of it all is the marriage supper of the Lamb. Where finally the bride of Christ in all of its resurrected glory is united to Christ for eternity. It's a wedding. It's a covenant relationship. It's everywhere. So, what... What are we called into? And, and what, are we, what are we going after here? Where I want to challenge us individually is, and again, Vaughan said it so well, is not commitment to a service and not commitment to a program. God forbid, we've had enough of those in our life. And look, when we do do programs, it's simply us being intentional and organized about doing something to love on people and to serve people and all of that. That's Okay. But what I want to ask is, who is God knitting your soul to? 
Who is God drawing you into relationship with in such a way that like Jonathan and David, there is this this covenant commitment to one another that says, where you go, I go, we are in this together. And And I'm not just talking about marriage here. And particularly I am talking about guys with guys and girls with girls. We saw the guys with guys with Jonathan and David. We saw the girls with girls with Ruth and Naomi. Who are the where you go, I will go people in your life? Who are the people that you have, that you have committed? We are in this together. Now, this is... Let me say this first. If your life is void of those relationships, this is not a condemnation, this is not a judgment, because largely the whole body of Christ is ignorant of this entire paradigm. And actually, this is the first time in how long, five years we've been around that we've actually taught really specifically into it um, because we wanted to get to a point where we're ready for this because this is no small deal. This is not something that we can enter into flippantly. Oh, cool, I'm just going to make a covenant with that person. No, bad. (laughs) That's not cool. Because one of, the th- one of the ways that the enemy gets access into a land, into a household, is through broken covenant. So covenants have spiritual power. They have spiritual power of protection, but if we enter them flippantly and break them, it also opens doors that we don't want opened. So it's not something we enter into lightly or flippantly, but it is about opening our heart and letting God knit it with the right people, sometimes for a season, sometimes for life. Who are those people? And you may not know the answer. And I'm not expecting that you'll walk away going, oh, I know the answer to that. All I'm asking is that we just open our heart to God around that question. And it could be a search that takes years. And it's not just one, and it's a number. It's it, the base level, it's finding your tribe. And then from there, who are the people that God is calling you to do life absolutely together? In a couple of weeks' time, a whole lot of you are doing Elijah House Module 1. How many of you are doing that? Yeah. And then there's another one two months later. You're doing the October one. So somewhere between now and the end of October, the vast majority of us will have been through Elijah House Module 1. All the stuff that this kind of concept is going to cause to stir and surface in your life, that will so help with. And we've been through it as a core team and you know, we've been through lots of ministry things through lots of our life. And I got it, it was so ridiculously helpful. Um, it was quite confronting um, in many places as well. But this stuff will surface stuff that wars against relational covenant in your life. Go with an open heart because the potential to bring some huge healing is absolutely massive. So the question, who is God knitting your soul to? Who are the where you go, I will go people in your life? Open your heart to God. Let him lead you. Don't try and work it out too hard. Just open your heart to God. Let him lead you in that because coming into those kind of relationships will multiply your fruitfulness. One can put to flight a thousand, two can put to flight 10,000. That's a pretty, that's an exponential upgrade right there. But in all of this, let's give the Father permission to heal our relational brokenness. We've all got it. Let's be real. Let's not, let's not pretend we don't. 
It's like trying to pretend you don't have nose hair and ear hair and like everyone has it, some more than others. I trimmed it yesterday actually just to make sure, but um, <laughs> we all have it. Let's not pretend we don't. Let's open our hearts and let the Father touch it because his heart is not just, to, he's not trying to mess around with our pain. He's wanting to bring us into a level of fruitfulness for which we have no grid for. It's actually his kindness. So let's give the Father permission to heal our relational brokenness so that our hearts can be knit together. And then, then we have a chance of showing the world what love really is. Let's stand. If you find any of this stuff profoundly challenging, you are not alone at all. (laughs) But we didn't sign up for ordinary. We didn't sign up for just doing church the way it's always been done. We signed up for something deeper, different, more profound, more powerful. And it can take a whole lot longer. It can be a whole lot less spectacular and a whole lot more messy, but it's a whole lot more real and therefore a whole lot more long-lasting. So let's go into receive mode in whatever way that looks for you. And Father, we just want to say, we give you permission to rock our world. We give you permission to, to touch our relational brokenness, which we all have. And we're at varying levels of healing. And some, even within our own hearts, there are some parts that are really, really healed and other parts that are still really raw and sore. And Father, we just give you permission to touch those places, knowing that your touch is good, that your touch is kind, that your touch is healing. God, we give you permission to touch and to heal anything that wars against love. Anything that wars against the ability of our, our heart and our soul to be knit in covenant to the heart of another. We give you permission to touch. Because we want that fruitfulness. We want the world to know that you sent Jesus. We want that fruitfulness and we know it comes out of covenant, but also, God, we want to be fully alive. We want to be fully representative of your heart and you are a covenantal God. Let us see that actually manifested in our midst with hearts being knit together, with lives sacrificing for the good of one another, laying down our own agenda so that another might fulfill their potential, that might fulfill their destiny, might fulfill their calling. And God, give us eyes, just like Jonathan had eyes to see the anointing of God on David. Would you give us eyes to see the anointing of God, the touch of God on each other, such that we can champion it, such that we can speak to it and see it grow? God, we give you permission to do in us whatever it takes so that we can truly show the world what love is. In your name.
Amen.